there's no shame in admitting you don't that you don't know the answer. I think there's more in shame in admitting in lying and saying that you do. Hello and welcome to the IXDA Sydney MP Pod, a show that guides you through the stages of design mentorship, whether you're just starting out as a baby sapling or you're blossoming into a seasoned designer. I'm Vanita Israni, and in this episode, Sam and Molly are talking to Marla Middleman. They're tackling some serious topics about building design teams and redefining culture, how to start growing designers with confidence and not arrogance, and how we can start challenging the status quo, whether that be for deliverables or managing stakeholders. Marla has been a leader of high-performing design teams as well as a hands-on UX designer for over 20 years. She's passionate about the design of useful, usable, and purposeful experiences for innovative products and services. She has designed, co-created, and led the experience uplift and creation of digital products and services through both enterprise-wide transformation projects and brand new zero-to-one digital product launches through Australia, Southeast Asia, and Europe. Since 2020, she's been working both as a freelance design consultant through Middleman Web and has been employed permanently by organizations such as BCG Digital Ventures and PwC to lead their experience and strategic design teams. We're really excited to share some awesome insights from Marla, but just a note that we've re-recorded this episode due to audio quality, but there are still a couple of hops and bumps along the way. Let's get started. How are you today? I'm fabulous today. Thanks, Sam. How are you? Very well, thank you. A a quick question that we ask all of our guests is, how was your 2021 and what new habits are you looking at rolling into 2022? So my 2021 was probably one of the most challenging years I've ever had, which is probably not too dissimilar to the rest of the world. Um, And I realized how much um, as an extrovert, I need to be with other people and how much that feeds my soul and my creativity. And what kind of habits am I bringing to the next year? I'm I'm trying to go a little bit slower, not take on so much, practice a little bit of um, mindfulness and, and taking space for myself, which is not something I ever thought I would admit to doing. Great. And as this is a mentor podcast, what does mentoring mean to you? I think it means learning from a multifaceted, multidimensional mentor-mentee relationship. So one thing I always really enjoy about being mentored and, and mentoring others is, is just personal growth that you get and the exposure you get to other people's perspectives and working practices and how much it's not just an exercise of imparting your knowledge onto others, it's, it's taking their knowledge um, into yourself and, and improving the way that you work and, and learning from them too. Okay, interesting. And is that something that just comes with experience? Um, I don't know if it necessarily comes with experience. I mean, that I think is my personal sort of view that I've developed over the years. I learn a lot when I'm working with other people generally. So whether it's a direct mentoring relationship or, or just guiding and working with other people on a project or any particular piece of work. I, um, I learned a lot from other people and it sometimes by osmosis and you didn't realize it's actually happening. And the same with a mentoring experience. I, I learned something from people every day. And to me, it's, it's just been um, a source of great value in my life and in my career. And are you still mentoring today? I do, yes. So um, I do it in different forms. So I act as a design advisor, a coach and mentor for the Antler Incubator, 
and their program that they run out of Australia, which is a pretty amazing program if you haven't seen it. And I've had some informal mentee relationships as well that I've had either through Project F, which is a really great organization that matches women uh, with other similar women who are looking to progress their careers and get that support. And then, you know, people have reached out to me on the Sydney Designers Network and other Slack channels. And also, I still try and maintain relationships and connections with people who've worked for me or I've worked with in the past as well. Okay, awesome. So that seems to be your your mentoring seems to be more of a leadership type level. And I know you've had pleasure of working and building teams at BCD Digital Ventures and a pepper of other organizations. How have you throughout the years been able to grow as a design practitioner and a leader? Great question. It's interesting because I think as you as you sort of go up the ladder, you get further away from actually being a hands-on practitioner. Um, so I found that actually quite struggling to start with because I was very much used to creating output and outcomes. And so all of a sudden when the role becomes a little bit more guiding and supporting and creating at a much more strategic level, it can be quite a shock to the system. But I wouldn't say I necessarily just mentor at the leadership level either. I work with really junior designers. And one thing I'm very passionate about is helping designers learn on the job and not just via academic studies. I'm not particularly an academic person. I'm a very practical person. I just think there should be almost like a, a cross-dimensional mentor relationship. So it's, it's not just leadership to leadership or anything like that, if that's what you were referring to. Mm, that's a great point. And, and speaking of being more about practical learning, how do you keep growing in these strange pandemic times? That is a really good question. And, and I think that's actually my worry is that um, I don't learn and I don't grow. Um, I think just going to events, being part of IXDA's local um, leaders program has been great because I've really learned a lot, you know, from, from the people I've met through that, continually reading, even though I have a thousand things I've never read, but always mean to. And just, you know, just trying to sort of tap into people who are willing to share their knowledge and experience as well. So even if it can't be learning from an academic perspective, I'm I'm learning on the job, as it were, on, on new projects and, and new things I take on. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm kind of the same. I feel like my list of books keeps growing and growing. But do you actually have any book re recommendations or, or podcasts for the audience to look into? I've sort of been less on the podcast thing recently. I used to listen to the Design Better podcast and then a, a colleague of mine got me onto Debbie Millman's uh, Design Matters as well, which I um, listen to from time to time. The books I've been reading have really been more related to the work I've been doing with Amla. So one called Obviously Awesome, which is about value proposition creation by April Dunford. And another book called Traction, which is about how any startup can achieve explosive customer growth. So less on the sort of design centric side and design practitioner and more into sort of what it takes to get product market fit and position products and, and take those into the market. So those are the two that I've been reading, but I have to admit, I've got a lot of bookmarks in my books of where I put things down and then moved on to something else, which tends to happen to me quite a lot. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Um, and I just wanted to know, how do you find the balance between challenging yourself and then it being too much when it comes to growth? <laughs> Great question. I remember Look, I, I like to take on projects that absolutely scare the shit out of me, but I will say a lot of projects do scare the shit out of me because sometimes you take something on and you've never actually personally approached that problem from that direction before. But those are the kind of projects and work that really make me push harder and, and go further because then I'm really challenging myself. 
I think if I was to take on something that I just really knew how to do in every aspect, then I probably wouldn't get the growth that I want. So the joy of the work that we do is every problem we solve is different. And so thankfully that's just been something that continued to sort of find my way, I guess. So, so I've been really lucky in that regard. And has there been a struggle to work remotely as opposed to being face-to-face -face with your team day-to-day? I think it depends on the team, actually. I mean, I, I have worked remotely on and off for quite a long time anyway. So that's something that I was quite used to doing, particularly when I was working at DV and we were working on large overseas projects. But I think as a natural extrovert, not being in a room with people and, you know, having those, I suppose, serendipitous conversations and being in front of a whiteboard, that's been a bit of a struggle. What I have found is when I've got those working relationships, so those personal physical relationships that I had in the, I suppose, in the real world before in place, it has made working together remotely just much faster and collaboration has been a lot easier. But, you know, I think as professionals in, in working in digital, we're sort of used to having to adapt anyway. You mentioned that you already have relationships with certain people in order to spark that ways of working. It must be hard to hire for search and culture fits when you're working remotely. How do you do this when deal with the challenges when you have hired someone and you're trying to work out their particular best ways of working? Yeah, that's been quite a challenge. And I think like maybe culture fit isn't quite the right word to use because I, it's becoming a bit of a dirty phrase. I'm starting to realize because, you know, culture is a sort of a living, breathing thing rather than something that's static and stays. There needs to be an investment in explaining how you work to other people who may not have worked with you before and understanding people's working styles. And I can't say I've actually nailed that yet because like anyone, I'm still a work in progress and I'm learning absolutely every day and I make mistakes all the time. But I think being able to establish team norms, understanding how people work, especially remotely. Some people might need like big blocks hours to really focus on a particular task or a problem. And then if you're pinging them on Slack every 10 minutes or trying to talk to them, you're really breaking that flow that they might have. So I think it's just trying to understand the people that you're working with and what their needs are so that they can get the best use um, um, of their day, but also trying to create those times for, so I suppose, team collaboration and bonding. However, you can do that remotely. I think that leads uh, nicely into understanding from your perspective how working remote has hindered, I guess, team culture or maybe having some of those rituals. Yeah, and, and look, I'm working with a great team at the moment. and I only joined them last week. It's just a short piece of work, but they've set up this Pika Kuchu that they do every Friday and everyone does 10 slides just to get to know each other. And I started on that last week and, and that was brilliant just as a way to get to know people and to sort of start to create those little rituals in place, yes. I love that, that's such a good idea. And I wondered with working remote, has that, do you think, hindered any of the quality of work? Or have you seen any changes in, in that aspect? Oh God, no, definitely not. So um, I, don't, I don't think it's impacted the quality of work at all. And I think it's actually helped in some regards as well. So people who don't have to think about getting their kids off to school and getting on the bus for an hour and all of those things that happen when, you know, we have, dealing with a global pandemic. Yes, of course, there's pressures on people when they're at home at the time. But um, I've actually not seen that it's degraded any quality of output at all. And at the end of the day, we're all adults and uh, we should be trusted as professionals. So I haven't seen that, no. 110% agree, you know, we all can handle like work-life balance, I guess, in, in different ways. 
I just wondered, how do you find working with different types of designers or, you know, maybe different types of personalities? Well, I think we have to, otherwise, how do you get any diversity of thought on a team? You know, I think you have to seek that out, quite honestly. If we all wanted everybody who was like us, then wouldn't it be a really boring, <laughs> very staid work environment? But also, where would that diversity of thinking come from? So, you know, I think we always need to seek out people that are different to us and complementary. And it's probably more the personality of collaboration and sharing and learning and a natural curiosity that's that's what I seek for. And those can exist in plethora of different personality traits. So you mentioned with Ross previously that uh, you had like a spreadsheet to work out best ways of working within your design team. You did that DV, right? Yeah, that was quite different. So when we put that together, that was really more of a matrix to understand how best to pair people on products and projects. So when we worked on ventures, we were very, very lucky because we actually got to work at the very early stage of that where you're going into research and you're trying to understand customer needs and problems. So we had designers uh, all the way from interns who we would essentially train up from the job all the way through to myself, who was the director at the time. And one thing that I was always very cognizant of is making sure that you give people a role and a project that will stretch them, but also give them the support that they have in that growth pathway as well. So they're not fending for themselves. And I used to do that in multiple ways. So it could be that someone had never run, uh, worked on an innovation sprint before or they'd never worked on an incubation sprint, or they'd never worked a new code that we had spun out. So it was my role to work really closely with our HR business partner to really make sure that those people were staff on the projects that they would learn from, that they had that right support. So I would never put, so for example, two associate designers on a big project together. That would, that would be a recipe for pain and fear. And so that was always something I was very, very mindful of just to make sure that we were constantly ensuring that support network, but also that growth because everybody learns from each other within those projects as well. And we saw some amazing mentoring, informal mentoring relationships build out from there too. And how would that scale to larger teams and projects or do you using the same type of matching methodology? Well, I mean, I think it comes, first of all, it's less controlled by a spreadsheet and more visualized that way. Obviously, you need to have a really deep understanding of the people that you're matching as part of this process. So understanding what, what drives them, what they enjoy doing, where they need to build their skill sets out. So I think you can scale it. However, what you do need is an understanding of all of those individuals. So that was on a team, I think, of 17 designers we had. I don't see any reason why you couldn't extend that out. You would just need to have that depth of understanding what, what drives those individuals and and what they need from a learning pathway and mentorship perspective too. That's a great point. On it, do you have any other strategies in place in regards to teaming and collaboration? No, just um, continue to do it and see what works really. You know, I, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I get to work with lots of different design teams all the time. I think just going in with open ears and, and understanding that you are there to learn from them as well and not impose your way of working. Not everything works for every scenario. And I think you just need to be very cognizant of that and aware that you need to adapt your approach sometimes. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess, you know, when you may be struggling with, you know, other people in the team and in teamwork, do you have any advice on how to deal with conflict? Again, it, this is one of those classic UX responses, isn't it? It depends. I personally am a very big advocate for clearing the air very early on and being quite direct. 
And I don't mean that in an aggressive confrontational style, even though I used to do that and I learned that was a terrible way to approach things. But I think, you know, conflict generally comes out of a, a lack of communication or a misunderstanding. And I think if you can create an opportunity that gives people the right place to express themselves and also listen to what those challenges are, then I think you can work through anything. Of course, there's going to be exceptions to those rules. And sometimes, you know, there's stuff going on at home that we just are not aware about that contributes to a conflict in the work environment. And I think you just, as a leader, as a manager, as a human, you just need to be aware of what's going on below the surface as well. Within this current climate, hiring has possibly been the hardest that it's ever been. We've personally had positions open for multiple months and we've struggled to determine whether there are good balance between skill sets for our team and looking at opposed to, to culture fit as well. How do you go through that kind of balancing act when hiring for a design team? I think for me, approach and, and as I mentioned before, the disposition rather, I'll say disposition rather than culture fit. Everybody has potential. I think what you need to see is do they play nice with others in regards to sort of how they fit within the team and you can call that culture, you can call that whatever you like. How's it, how challenging has it been? I think it's been super challenging, just in the sense that there's been a huge demand for designers um, that's really ramped up in the last sort of 18 months or so. And I think that sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect between um, what you need and, and what the expectation is for those just newly entering the industry. I think, like anything, it's really good to have a very clear process for how you recruit. And over the last couple of years, I have been recruiting designers in multiple countries around the world. So in 2020, I was tasked with building out a team and supporting the growth of that team in Portugal. We also looked at hiring a team in Malaysia for another project I was on. So, you know, I think as long as you have a very clear view of what you need, but also does that person have the potential to for growth? Um, and then do you have the room to support that growth as well and take them through that pathway? You know, I, I think it's, it's like anything. It's, it's one of those challenges that you have to face constantly, but I, I don't think it's the biggest problem in the, in the world. I think the challenge sometimes is, is retaining people because, you know, we do have a really hot market right now and I see sort of people leaving roles quite a lot. So I think that what's really important for organizations and companies is to ensure that you're giving people the right work and you're empowering them as designers and you're giving them a place to stay, but also to grow into as well. You know, at the end of the day, people don't look for jobs just for the monetary factor, even though that is very compelling to go. They're looking for growth, they're looking for challenge, and they're looking for something that makes them happy. And I know I've started to look more of the, is this a project I want to take on? Is this the kind of client I want to have? And those kind of aspects, I think, apply to, to hiring as well. So I think those are the questions that designers should ask when they're, they're looking for roles or when they're looking for, for new workplaces and teams to join. And when they are looking for new roles and teams to join, how important is the right balance of uh, technical UX skills and soft skills when going into those more senior positions? Well, I guess it depends on the role again. So soft skills, and, and maybe let's just call them, you know, more business and communication skills, because they're not really that soft. They're pretty bloody important and soft sort of sometimes implies <laughs> they're not as relevant as technical skills. But I think, you know, I think you can teach pretty much most people the technical skills if they have the proclivity and the, and the want to learn. I think you have to have, you have to identify who those people are who could be really brilliant leaders and you have to nurture that kind of experience and talent as well. 
So I think they're both equally important. As I said, depending on the role you're in, depends on what that level of technical hands-on tools you need to sort of be in every day. I don't have to do that very much anymore. I do have to dip in and out a bit. But that's the kind of stuff, if somebody knows, say, for example, Sketch, they can learn Figma, they can learn, you know, they might already know Illustrator, they can learn another tool. So, you know, if you've got that core, I don't think that's the hardest part. I think it's more about process that wraps all of those together and that willingness to learn and, and learn new techniques and learn from others and not believe that you know the answer, but know that you believe that you have the method to get to the answer. Yeah, that's a great point. And I guess I wonder, how do you create that culture of curiosity and you know wanting to learn more and around the methods as well rather than the practical maybe technical skills I think there's so many ways you can do it you know I mean I had and I was very lucky to be a part of a really incredible design team at DV but I didn't set that up I came in and I inherited something that was already great to begin with and I was then given the custody to to grow that and to nurture that even further and we made sure well, okay, so when we talk about culture, what we're really talking about is an ethos that we all subscribe to and we all buy into and a reason for us all being there. And that's sort of what I put around the word culture. And also there's certain behaviors that get exhibited as well. So for example, when I worked at DV, we had an amazing team of designers. And but when I first started there, none of us used to meet because we were always just singular designers in the experience design cohort on our own project. So what that meant was we didn't really have that culture of cross-communication or sharing across the cohort because everybody was deployed, sometimes in different countries. So we did a couple of things. First of all, we changed the way that teaming works so that you always had a design pair and that this is the complementary sort of matrix skill set that I talked about across before. So you always had someone to sort of guide and support you and, and also you know, round out that particular set of skills that you might not be so strong in. What we also did was we set up fortnightly meetings. So where we could appropriately share work, we would share work across the team and everybody had a bit of a show and tell and we caught up very, very regularly. And then we would have offsite to make sure that we had things that and active activities that brought us together. So whether it was karaoke, which uh, anyone who has worked with me will tell you I'm a huge fan of, or picnics in the park or escape rooms, or even just having a breakfast every fortnight or every month. We would make sure that we dedicated that time to spend together. And so one time I remember we had a dial-in for all of the designers. And I think they were in Malaysia, Miami, Melbourne, Sydney. And it was just, you know, to me, it was wonderful that people who quite rightly didn't have to join that. It was like 7, 38 o'clock in their local time zones wanted to tap into that existing meeting that we already had and that get together. And to me, that just said that something was working right. Yeah, that's so cool, especially having a bit more of a global community as well. And Marseille, when you said karaoke, I definitely miss that in these strange <laughs> COVID times. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you have no idea. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Changing topic slightly, well, kind of related to open mindsets. How do you steer through politics within the workplace? Maybe not necessarily in your team, but with clients. I mean, it's just the constant challenge that you have in even if a friend dynamic, let alone in a work dynamic, you know, people cause political problems from time to time. And sometimes you might be the person that's causing it. I've got better at that, I hope, as I've got older. I think I've realized what are the, the hills I want to die on? Um, what are the points that I can just walk away from? I think with politics, it just comes back down to understanding people. 
and understanding people's motivations. And, you know, as designers, sometimes, you know, there's this constant phrase of fighting for a seat at the table. Well, I think we're almost sitting at that table. I think what we need to do now is sort of extend out a little bit further and understand those other roles and how we can support those that might sit in a leadership team or or that may not might understand or need guidance from how you can apply design techniques to support a business or to take a strategy forward. So when it comes to politics, I think before I used to be terrible at that because I used to come in with like a bit of a blunt force attack and bang things over the head. And now I've sort of realized that I need to sort of sit back and listen and take more of a more of a passive approach, but understanding what are the battles you want to fight and also who can help you, who can you align with? I hope that answered the question. Yeah, no, that did, realizing that you have other people to lean on or, or to gain support in those situations. When you're dealing with different areas of the business and you don't necessarily have the answer in that exact moment, what would you recommend to do in, in that situation? Ask questions, talk to people, do research, all of the tools that we have in our in our tool set as human-centered designers. If you don't have the answer, a, a great quote was given to me by a manager I had about 24 years ago. I once said to her, I don't know the answer to that. And she said, no, the correct answer is I'll find out. So if you don't have the answer, go find out. None of us have the answer to anything, but we do have a lot of great ways to find that out and to learn. And throughout your career, I know you've worked across consultancies, agencies, and on client side. How has that not knowing been different across the, the different types of work that you've worked across, or, or has it stayed the same? I actually think that when you're working client side, you still have a client. It's just a different type of client. There's always someone you're designing for. So obviously, we we have business stakeholders. There's people who hold the coin pass and we need to make sure that we're delivering value back to the business as well as you know designing for users. So whether you're designing for a client that might be uh, via a consultancy, so either by the work I did at BCP Digital Ventures or by the consultancy I have myself, it's exactly the same as if I was within a design team in an organization, I believe. I don't really sort of see it as being that different. I've learned a lot about client management over the years and, and I think you know as long as you as an individual can build trust it doesn't matter who your client is. From a consultant's perspective say if they're quite junior with only a couple of years of, of experience then what you're saying is there's no shame in saying look I actually I actually don't know this I know I know some some clients turn around and, and say, well, what am I paying you for if you don't know this? What what would you what would you say to that? Again, Sam, it depends. You know, if someone's saying to me, you know, what are what is priority AA compliance or priority one compliance or WCAG, I can't even remember the right terms these days, then that's something that you probably do want to know as a UX designer and that's what they're paying you for. If someone that to me is just the skills inherent in your roles. And if you don't know that, you would know who to escalate or to ask that question or how to get informed. However, if someone's saying to you, is this the right solution for this particular problem? I don't think any designer could stand there hand on heart and go, yes. I think we need to say, I don't know, we need to test it, we need to validate it, we need to check. And so I think that it, there's a time and a place for confidence, but confidence is different to arrogance. And arrogance is, I think, where people assume that you have the answer, whereas confidence is knowing progress and the methods that you need to uh, work through to get the answer. So even if you've worked on a very, very similar 
project with the same problem space and you can lean on previous experience, we would still kind of go with that approach? No, because I think, again, it depends. You know, I don't think there's one approach to every problem, but I do think, you know, someone, I mean, look, I can go in and say, you're probably going to have a few problems with how you structured that navigational element or how you created that IA or something like that. That's something that comes, I think, from knowledge and experience, regardless of, of, of how much of that you have. I think there's people paying for you advice and to consult on the right approach to take. And I think that is something that you can demonstrate with confidence. And I think that's what they're paying you for to bring that level of expertise. But, you know, to expect a designer to say that they've got the right design the first go, you know, that's a different kind of confidence and that's a different kind of answer. So I guess back to my comment before, which is going to get really boring, it really depends. So coming from a consultant perspective, we were often coming from this approach where you have a statement of work and you're asked to produce these certain artifacts, which sometimes aren't necessarily providing value to the customer, but you're just doing it uh, because it's on the SOW. How do you get around these types of problems and say, look, we're not doing this. We shouldn't be producing this. We should be doing a certain other thing instead. Yeah, that is a hard one. And I can think of quite a few scenarios where I've gone into roles and I've seen a list of SOWs and it's almost like the business manager, whoever's you know, got that sale over the line, has given a shopping list of items and we've just checked them off. And so I've, I've seen that quite a few times and, and it, I can find it a bit frustrating because you don't want to just create outputs for the sake of outputs. You want to create outcomes and artifacts that drive those outcomes. So there's a couple of ways you can approach it. I mean, it's a bit difficult when an SOW is a, basically a legal document that says this is what we'll be delivering to try and deviate from that. But I do think that potentially you could have an opportunity for you to talk to your client or whomever you're delivering work for and just understand what they're trying to achieve and then maybe explain in the context of, say, when you've been asked to produce X, but that might not be a high value outcome or output that drives the next piece of the design and have that conversation and see what trade-offs you can make. So I've seen that happen quite a lot and um, it is a challenge. I mean, at the end of the day, when I'm bidding for work, sometimes I'm asked to do that, but more often than not, I'm asked to sort of show a method for how we will deliver on the objectives of the project. And then I talk about the kind of artifacts that we might produce, depending on what we're learning and depending on what we need to do at the time. So we're not so um, locked into, you have to create X, Y, and Z. Um, but it is a hard one, it's a challenge, and I think, you know, if you're working in an organization that is essentially selling that list of artifacts, I think there needs to be a very strong conversation about why that's happening. One thing I've done in the past, and I remember particularly a project for a bank probably about 10 or 12 years ago, and we were asked to create one asset that I'd never heard of before, and I'd been working UX a while, and the question that I had for the team was, could you please explain to me what this is and how we'll use it? to inform the next stage of design, because the client's gonna ask me that and I can't tell them right now. And I think, you know, just having that conversation at the outset, if you don't know what it informs, and it's just a piece of delivery for the sake of ticking something off a box, then, you know, I, I think you are at the right time and in the right way, I think you're completely entitled to challenge that, but it's not, we're not gonna do it, it's what would be better. 
what would be better to replace that particular piece? So I guess that's kind of going straight back to having that overarching view of what the business wants and what the business needs, which every single designer needs, right? Yeah, I mean, like, definitely, because at the end of the day, you know, we do need to deliver business outcomes. They are the ones that employ us. They're the ones that create the business case. And we, we do have to understand how the value of what we're creating delivers value back to the business. But I also think we need to understand why. Why do you ask for that? What does it serve? What does it inform? And maybe there's a different way to deliver that. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, Marla, I'm going to ask you an interesting question. So where do you think that you may have failed as a leader? or maybe a more senior designer? Oh, um, so many times I failed. Uh, so many, so many times. I probably failed more than I've succeeded, but what I tend to do is try and learn from those experiences. I can tell you a time I failed in my negotiation skills a long time ago, and I actually used it as a subject of a talk a few years back. And I was working for a large telecom on a huge transformation project, and I was absolutely scared out of my wits because I was essentially leading the design for an entire retail platform and that was then moving into electronic bill presentment and payment. And we were working with a, a very large consultancy, whose name I will not name, who were arguing with us over the quality of the work that we had created. So, for example, there was something on the right-hand stack. It was a, a full-width table, and those are days where you have fixed viewport sizes, so nothing was really elastic or scaling. And this piece of functionality fell to the bottom of the, of the screen. And I argued in that meeting for about an hour, unsuccessfully, I might add, that that was broken and that the company responsible needed to fix that because that was something a customer would notice. And I argued so hard that at the end of that, I lost, by the way, he, he, we were in production with it, I was mortified. But I remember coming out of that meeting and saying to my boss, oh my God, and he goes, how are you? And I burst into tears. It was so emotionally draining for me to sort of try and argue about this this piece of functionality but what i learned from that is that was not the right approach <laughs> i was essentially you know meeting fire with fire and what i learned from that was something that i needed to adapt the way that we worked so that i never had to have that conversation ever again and i remember it was always a fight about what is considered a cosmetic defect and that was always a priority five and it never got fixed and um, I just changed the way that we categorize defects for this particular project. And then I did the same thing in my, in my subsequent roles as well, which was, is a customer going to notice? If a customer is going to notice, it is definitely going to be fixed. And if it's not, then, then you could probably let that go. And maybe you, you save that fight for another day. But I think what I realized from that, and I think it's a leadership lesson, but I just think it's a general sort of communication lesson is, you know, um, number one is not the hill you want to die on. And number two, like, What's, what am I doing wrong that I'm not cutting through in my communication? And I think in my early days, not even just as a leader, but as a designer as well, I, as I said, I go in like a full-on battering ram and I try and argue and try and be right. And a really great colleague of mine once said to me, Marla, you know what, you don't have to be right. And it was the best thing I've ever heard because he, he was right. I don't need to be right. And so, yeah, I fell all the time. That's just one example. I'm sure I could think of a thousand more. Oh, that's a great example and even better advice that it's so easy to get caught up, you know, in, in problems and sometimes you do just need to take that step back. Do you think that's, you know, a big challenge as a designer is just finding that balance between business goals and user goals? All the time. Absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest challenges we face. 
one, I suppose, tactic I've, I've tried to implement is only bite off what you can do super well, you know? So if you're trying to meet business goals, but you're trying to meet user goals, it might be sometimes there's an overlap of that that has some kind of dissonance. So for example, the user goals are, obviously I'm just making stuff up now, you know, ultimate simplicity and they need to be open account in, you know, less than 20 minutes or whatever it might be. And I'm just making up KPIs. But the business goals might be, we need to capture 117 pieces of information. So immediately there's two things that conflict there, the business goals and the user goals. And I think it's our job as designers to understand and challenge why and to really help educate and not in a patronizing way. It's almost rather than educating, we're trying to coach and improve other people's knowledge in what we do in the same way that we're trying to learn what motivates them, what drives their roles as well and how we can all equally make each other successful. If you're a senior designer building out teams in relatively low maturity organizations, how do you break the barriers at sea level to get design more widely adopted? Yeah, it's the classic question, isn't it, really? Well, first of all, if you're a designer in an organization, you're building out a team, that's a great indicator that they've seen the value of design and are willing to invest in it. So that's a great tick right there. But I think as designers, we've got to be very careful that we don't paint ourselves into a corner where we are purists. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's nothing special about us. We are not snowflakes. I said this on multiple panels I've been on. We are just humans with a different kind of skill set. And I think it's up to us to empower other people to understand why we do what we do and equally for them to empower us for us to understand why they do what they do. So I think the first battle is, you know, already solved because you've got that investment, you've, they've hired a designer and now you're being tasked with building out the team. So the next part is create allies, tell people why you're doing what you're doing, explain how that drives value back into the business or increases productivity or whatever metric you can think of so that you're not just talking about design, you're demonstrating its value as well. And I think you're starting to see, or we're starting to see now that there is a, a, a bit of a, a change now. People are seeing the value of experience design and they also see what happens when you fail that experience and the negative impact that can have on the business. So in a way, all of those terrible flaws that are happening to other organizations who are really not invested in their in their customer experience or they haven't invested in what we perceive to be design, I think in a way sort of paving the way for success for us in other, in other domains. And back to the kind of great resignation. I know there's a lot of people out there looking for jobs right now and how looking at how important that is to see people within leadership positions with strengths in design. How, how important is that for, for people who are looking for jobs? Um, I think it depends on the person. I think it depends on the role that they're going into and the company they're going into. I mean, I've been very lucky in that I've worked for organizations that have chief design officers and I have colleagues who have gone on to become chief experience officers and the value of that role is really sort of shown in the quality of the products and the services that they, that they produce. Um, so I think for young designers going into an organization, I think it all depends at what stage you're at in your career and what you're looking to learn and what's important to you. And it could be that that young designer going in might not have any design, design leadership there they can look up to, but you might have a really amazing head of engineering who's got a passion about design. You might have somebody who comes from the other side of the business on the commercial side who, you know, loves sketching in their spare time or is um, doing a human centered design course or learning about design thinking, whatever it might be. So, 
even though you know the pinnacle i guess is going into an organization that has very strong leadership at the at the c-suite or or the next level down c minus one i do think there's a lot of opportunity for people to almost start that design culture and maturity themselves so i think there's a lot of opportunity there too and, and i guess from that be looking more than just into more than just wireframes and and ui frameworks and learning about the business as a whole right and i think we covered that in in areas before but as a designer who would have maybe two to five years worth of experience what type of areas would you suggest them looking into to learn more about the business that they're in i think we need to understand the cost of what it takes to produce what we're designing and i think that's something that is really important because every change that we make is is going to have a monetary cost associated with it you know it's not free to build stuff quite frankly unless you're unless you're a no code prototype guru or if you're doing it yourself it's just not free in a business context so i think we need to understand you know what are the drivers of the business and what does it cost to make design changes because if you've suddenly just redesigned an interface because you thought it looked better two weeks later that could be you know forty thousand dollars to build that into production so i think understanding basic project management and how the costing of projects and design works, I think is really important as well. But I think at the end of the day, this is just about getting a little bit more well-rounded as a human and as, as a professional, you know? I was very, very lucky because I started my career as a producer. So in my role as a producer, I would cost the work, I would manage the work, and it was my job to also manage it under budget. So, you know, I went in very early with an understanding of what, what something takes and, and what something costs to produce. But I think I sort of lost that along the way. And then I became a bit of a purist and I had to really adapt my approach to be much more of a pragmatist as, as I progressed later in life. But at the end of the day, just be curious, ask people questions. You know, we don't exist in isolation to each other. We exist in an organization as, as collaborators and as part of a team. Let's uh, spread the learnings as well as the love. Yeah, that's such a great message. Now thinking more about projects, how do you, resource or, or match the right people to the right projects or pieces of work so it depends on the project i'm doing again so when i was at dv and um, the matrix that i talked about where i really understood the skills and the learning goals of the team was was how i would do that at dv when i'm working on projects on my own business there's a there's a couple of things at the moment availability is probably the first one because that seems to be the deciding factor in you can get on projects so Availability is first one, who's available? Second of all, you know, what am I looking for and, and which bits are the most important from a skills profile and a staffing profile? So it's the same role that a recruiter does or as anybody who is running a team, you need to understand exactly what you need for the project and the skills of the people that you have at your disposal. Terrible word, but I think you know what I mean. So that you can get the right outcome for the client. But you're not scaling the shit out of designers and throwing them into things that they can't do or, or they're, they're not supported well enough to achieve. But at the same time, you're, you're, you're pushing them so that they're not bored. It's that delicate balance, isn't it? Cool. Well, it's been amazing having you on today. And uh, yeah, it's been, been great hearing all of your insights. Thank you very much. Thanks for including me, Sam and Molly. It was really lovely to talk to you again, too. And that concludes our latest episode of the IXDA Sydney MP pod. If you want to learn more about IXDA Sydney's events and mentorship programs, please visit ixdasydney.org. See you next time. Hi, I'm Marla Mitchellman. 
And today you've been listening to the IXTA Mentoring Podcast. <laughs>